Hey everyone, this is Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. This is Tracy Ibarra. I'm an executive solutions at Dell Technologies. This is Travis Chappell, founder of Build Your Network. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change, to navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, my very good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Well, uh, I have been living in Dubai for more than 25 years now. So most of my life uh, I've spent in uh, Dubai. I've been working at HP, as you said, for more than 15 or 16 years even now. I am Canadian, but Lebanese origin. So I speak Arabic, French, and English. And wow. as you said, I manage now a large region, which is an opportunity to discover cultures and uh, different ways of thinking, covering Eastern Europe, Russia, Turkey, Middle East, and all of Africa. So you've gone from one climate, being Canada, where it can be quite cold at times, to go and living in Dubai, which can be just so hot. However, I've got to say, the times I've been in Dubai as well, Ernest has been so cold inside with the air conditioning, right? So um, it's probably very similar. Not as cold as Canada. And, and you can imagine my uh, my body shock when I traveled in September. It was minus 15 in Canada uh, and landing in Dubai with plus 40 <laughs> exiting the plane. There were no tubes at the time and you feel uh, like you've entered an oven. But it's been an amazing ride. Wow. Yeah, I can, I can imagine the different climates for sure. And so listeners, I think that's a very good example of us being able to adapt in today's world, which is really good. But even though it's meaning climates and going into a new city or country for sure. So Ernest, how did you get into leadership? So that's, an, I believe, an interesting story that I always tell my team members who are aspiring to become managers and so on. I, I was in an individual contributor. I was a product manager running large format business in, in the region. And I was part of a, what we call graphics team. So we were five, six people, but at the, the structure at that time did not have a manager role. So we were all reporting to the GM who was busy with a lot of other things. And I realized that this is an opportunity for me to grab hold of some of the leadership tasks that the GM could not do for this specific team. So I started asking him for meetings. He would ask me to run them and so on. And, and it evolved into the GM realizing that I could be a manager or a leader. And that resulted in him giving me a, an opportunity to, to do an actual leadership role and manage a big team and a big business in the company. So you have to grab it and find it yourself and not wait for somebody to give it to you. Right. So grab the opportunity or go and find the opportunity. Don't wait for somebody else to give it to you is really important here. So grab it with two hands, run, go for it. And uh, that's what Ernest has done. Yeah, excellent. What was it like for you to grab it with two hands or go for it? And did it feel, did you, were you nervous? Was it, did you have confidence or how were you? 
Not at all. Honestly, it was not necessarily intentional confidence. It came natural. And I think people who enjoy and are successful at being leaders, it comes natural to them. Some people don't have it. Their skills are somewhere else. Their strength is somewhere else. And they take leadership and they're not as successful or they're not as happy. So people who would become successful leaders, it should be natural. It should not be forced or driven or pushed. Okay, great. Nice, excellent. So give them the opportunity and probably give them space to be able to do that, right? So it's natural uh, for sure. Hey, Ernest, now this person could be alive or from history. Who's your favorite leader and why? Okay. I would say uh, Richard Branson, but that is not much about the net worth or number of companies he runs. But for me, the most important part is the joy of what she does. He looks happy. He exudes happiness and joy in what he does. And I think this is as important and as inspiring as financial success or, you know, the number of companies or businesses you manage. Happiness in what you do is key. And I believe that's the ultimate objective. Happiness in what you do, I'm writing this down, is key. I think that's awesome. I think that's that's fantastic. So... Team, if you're not doing something today and you're not happy in doing it, Ernest, what do you think they should do? If, they, if they're not happy in something they're doing today, what do you think people should do? I think people should look back to themselves and think about what they enjoy doing. People are more successful in jobs where they love what they do, where they are happy with what they do, than people who force themselves because culturally habit says you have to become a manager, you have to do this, you have to do that. If you're not happy, you won't be successful and you will be miserable. Being happy leads to success. Nice. Being happy leads to success. That's good. And I think the thing here is, is if you're not happy and you're miserable, as you say, what happens here, team, is that you'll take that home. You'll be miserable to live with, for sure. And uh, I think it's, uh, so being happy leads to success. Excellent. The question I've got here for you, uh, Ernest, is, the title of this show is called Leadership is Changing, as you know. When I say that title, what does that mean for you? I think leadership is changing in a lot of ways. And I believe that these changes are challenging a lot of old habits that we are used to. I'll name a few of these that I believe are very important. Successful leadership today is about influence, not authority. People driven by their own conviction go further than people who are being pulled or pushed. Habits or culturally or, you know, the way things were happening was that the leader has to push his team and drive them. And I believe that it's more today about influence and conviction than push or even pulled. I think that it's challenging one of the old habits that we do. The second one, I think Ralph Nader, who was a prominent lawyer in the U.S. and and actually a a presidential candidate at some point, he said the function of leadership is to produce more leaders, not more followers. Again, habit is leaders would have a bigger team, the bigger team, the bigger leader I am, but it's not about that anymore. And I had such an experience where all of my team became regional leaders managers or product managers, and I was proudest at that time, not because of the bigger team I have, but because all of them moved on to bigger jobs and bigger roles. And I'll say one more, the role of a leader is to create 
a safe place for the team, which provides secure environment for them, but that is, that is not enough. I think a leader needs to create a brave space, which will encourage creativity and challenge of the status quo. Otherwise, we don't ch drive change. Safety does not drive change. Brave space allows for that change to happen. Wow. So create a brave space for the people in your organization to be, have the courage to be able to go and do things. Yeah. So I'm based here in Melbourne, Australia. And as you said, I'm co global co-CEO of Talent Beyond Boundaries, which is a really innovative, exciting startup organization in the nonprofit sector. So a bit of a change for me coming from larger nonprofits. So I love the, the topic of your podcast because I think I've really experienced this change in leadership that comes from moving from larger organizations to smaller organizations. But yeah, I think that's, that's probably enough. As you say, very passionate about human rights and social development issues and feeling very fortunate to be working for an organization where I can put those passions to direct use. Excellent. So listeners, I'm really looking forward to this conversation about the questions I've got around leadership and leadership has changed. The first question I've got here for you, Steph, is how did you get into leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's funny because you can be into leadership at quite junior positions in an organization sometimes, I think. And for me, I got into leadership, I would say, by doing projects myself. So I actually used to when I was in my early 20s, I ran a film festival, co-ran a film festival with my now husband, <laughs> um, oh. actually how we met. And we, yeah, we used to run a film festival across Melbourne that ran for a few years and was just like, you know, totally not to do with my university or to do with, you know, a proper job or anything like that. But it was leadership in the sense that we did everything ourselves. We built up a team you know, we, we kind of like created this thing from the ground up. And I think that gave me, that really hooked me on really entrepreneurship. I think like the idea that you can build something yourself and you can corral people around it and you can, you know, build a team and be part of a team and, and get something off the ground like that. So it really started there. But then in my mid twenties, I guess I started working for Oxfam and I was really lucky at Oxfam to have a manager and mentor who really allowed me to have a lot of space to make decisions and to tape on big projects and, you know, to make mistakes and it wasn't a big deal. And he just backed me completely and supported me, you know, to have that freedom and gave me one particularly large project, which when I look back and I think about my age and my experience at the time was like a really big project to, to give someone like me and it worked we pulled it off, but basically it was this project called Refugee Realities, which was a simulated refugee experience that, that the idea of it was to give Australians a sense of like, why do people flee? And we worked with about 20 refugees who were living in Australia to kind of understand their stories and to pull their stories into the simulation. So it was kind of part theatre, part education project. And we had about 8,000 visitors come through the site where it was on. We had 200 volunteers. We had probably 20 partner organizations that were part of it. And that was really kind of my, my first big experience of leadership, I think, having to manage so many people and, and you know, take on a level of risk that if it, if it failed, it would have been a bit of a big deal. But yeah, I think that, that was really, I was just so lucky to have a manager who was willing to back me and support me to do that at a pretty early stage in my career. Yeah, and I think uh, managers that do do that with their staff to back them and, you know, uh, it's really wonderful to see. What do you think, I mean, managers who are leaders who do that, 
I mean, how do they take that risk? What, what do they see in someone else to allow them to say, okay, let's give this person a chance? What do you think goes through their mind? Yeah, I have thought about this so many times. And actually my, my manager now, or my, the, the co-founder of Talent Beyond Boundaries, who really got me into ta- Talent Beyond Boundaries, um, his name's John Cameron. His, his mantra is you hire on potential and you look for potential. And I just think it must be a gut thing in a way, but it's also probably a, a personality thing that you can tolerate risk and it's actually okay if you give you know, responsibility to someone who's not fully tried and tested because you're okay with the, you know, the flip side, which is it may not work perfectly well. But I think, yeah, hiring on potential, I, I really, I've taken that mantra to heart because I think that also is a really important way of looking for people who may not have like the typical profile or the, you know, when we think about trying to build diverse teams, for example, you've got to look at people who maybe have been marginalized or they haven't had access to all of the, you know, like core resources and supports that would help get them into a position where they're like ticking all of the boxes for a leadership position. So you really do need to look for potential and how you nurture that potential in order to hire people from different backgrounds as well and not kind of cookie cutter replacements of the same white leaders <laughs> basically to put it to put yeah. it that way. Yeah. So I think there's something in that in in managers that can handle the risk and and look for potential, not just looking for someone to fill a need to take the work off their plate or to, to obviously do a job that's that's highly needed, but to do it in a way that you give the person space to grow into the role as well. It's really amazing how you see people. And I work with a lot of executives and senior leaders and I talk to them about a, them and their careers, where they're going next, but also them bringing in other people as well. And you know, they look to hire people based on a degree and based on this and based on that. And the, and the resume doesn't always reflect the person. It just reflects some um, words and some titles and things like that. And it's just like, no, get to know the person. That's why I always say to people, the power of your network and their network's network is so strong because if somebody comes to me and says, hey, Steph, you've got to hire Steph because of A, B, C, and D, and, you know, Steph and that, and they're giving their own backing about it, that is so more powerful than, than anything else, right? And it's just huge. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, you know, th- that is just the, the rule 100%, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Mm. But there's so many bad things that come from that, you know, like that, that, that's why Talent Beyond Boundaries exists in a way, because there's a whole, not a cohort, there's literally 25 million refugees around the world who are stuck in countries where they can't legally work for the most part because they're seen as, you know, a drain on society, you know, they're, they're kind of treated as second-class citizens in a way. And it's, yeah, it's this crazy situation because there's so many talented professional people in that group, so many people with skilled trades, you know, experience working in different fields that they could make a contribution, but they're just not seen like that and they don't have the networks necessarily. And that's really like Talent Beyond Boundaries is about trying to connect those people with employers in other countries so that we can actually profile them and say, these are good people to hire, you know, like, honestly, trust us, we've met with these people. And yeah, it does make it really, really hard if you don't have the networks and you're in that kind of marginalized position, it can make it really hard to break through. And I think that's, that's a very important kind of function that an organization like Talent Beyond Boundaries plays. And there's lots of other organizations doing it, that kind of work as well, trying to create the network for people who don't automatically have that to tap into. 
You know, and I think about my dad in particular, he comes from Greece, right? And he came to New Zealand, I think just on 61 years ago. And it was just after the wars and so forth. And, you know, as a young guy, he came here, didn't speak English, came here. But the only thing, the reason, I mean, one of the reasons he came here was to be with his father's brother, who has happened to be right. here, who came here with him. There was nobody here from, from that community and so forth. And, you know, I know they're not refugees. However, they were migrants that came across and um, it wasn't easy for them. And, you know, the stories that he shares with me and, but I see a lot of Australia, a lot of New Zealand have been built on refugees, on migrants and people coming in and, and seeing what they've done. It's just been an amazing story that each and every single one of them will actually have to, to share. Absolutely. Maybe there's a new podcast we could start. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, absolutely. There's so many stories. And I think you're right. You know, the migrant experience and the refugee experience is very similar in that respect that, you know, you're really, you're building up. Again, maybe people have got some connections in the country, but, you know, compared to where they've come from and the kinds of networks and supports and that even just like the local knowledge that you have from your yeah. own country, you know, it's, I can't think of anything more. You need to be very resilient to be a migrant or a refugee, I think, and to make it through and to, you know, make a go of it. And I think we find um, it must be a very resilience building experience as well, because so many people of refugee and migrant backgrounds as you say, do really well and have made a huge impact and contribution to the countries that they've settled in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.